You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Tuesday, December 10th, 2013, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. How is everybody this week? I got a headache. Great. You have a headache, Bob? Except for Bob. It's my annual headache, so I'm just dealing with it. Wait, you get one headache per year? Approximately. And and if somebody who really got headaches could experience my headache, he would laugh at me or she would laugh at me because it's so lame, because I know it's lame, but when you get it so infrequently, it's annoying as hell. Hey, Bob, let me introduce you to Dr. Stephen Novella, headache specialist. <laughs> Bob, I think we should start you on multiple high-dose daily medications in order to prevent this one mild headache. <laughs> yeah. So we have several news items this week that deal with mysteries. We'll be getting to those in a minute. But first, Rebecca is going to give us this day in skepticism. Happy birthday to Tico Brahe. Wait, wait, wait. Tico, wait. Tico or Tycho? I mean, I've heard it both ways, but I'm pretty sure it's Tico Bra in oh boy. Danish or... Okay. <laughs> Am I going to get in yeah. trouble? Danish, <laughs> yes. Uh, anyway. That was cheesy, that was cheesy it, Danish. Is it Tycho a Latinized version of his name anyway? Yes. But I, I think that... When I was in Copenhagen, yeah, I heard mm-hmm. it pronounced Tico. Wait, isn't Bra- it Copenhagen? <laughs> oh my god anyway he's Anywho. the ah. greatest astronomer who ever lived sorry phil plate you know i love you but you can't compete with tico <laughs> every i'm sure you know i've talked about him enough on the podcast that most people know the basic facts but uh let me just go over a few of them for fun uh so he was a very well-known astronomer during his life he had his own observatories that he built on his own island he made several uh discoveries he overturned the aristotelian idea of an unchanging celestial realm some of his stuff in the end was proven wrong but for the most part he laid a lot of the groundwork for future discoveries to come and he did a lot of it without even using a telescope he was a great scientist but more than that he was a rock star so let's go through the facts he had an amazing mustache, first and yeah. foremost, giant yeah. wal- walrus stash. He had a fake nose. Yeah. He lost his, the bridge of his real nose in a duel over a mathematical formula. Oh, my God. And that just never happens anymore. Yeah, I know, unfortunately. And so he replaced it with a nose of some sort of metal. Studies have suggested that it was most likely brass, but he also may have had several other things that he swapped in and out, like gold and silver, just for parties. He had an elk who was tame and lived with him and unfortunately died when it got drunk one night and fell down the stairs. Oh, I hate when that <laughs> Oh, my God. He also had a friend who was a little person who would apparently hang out under the table at dinner parties and was psychic, according to Tico. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, Wait, 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 Rebecca. Yeah. Yeah. What year was this? Oh, well, uh, Tico was born in 1546 and died in 1601. 
And the way he died has been the subject of much controversy for a long time. It was assumed that he had died of an exploded bladder because he was at a party and he thought it was rude to leave the table despite having to urinate. So he stayed at the table for so long that he gave himself a quite serious problem and that he couldn't urinate at all after that. And then he died a few days later. So holding However, it in made it so he couldn't pee? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whoa. That's crazy. No, yes. that's actually – that I, happens. If if the bladder gets too big, then it, the, the muscles in the wall of the bladder just can't contract anymore. You actually have to drain the bladder for days and allow it to recontract. You know, so that happens when people have like a spinal cord injury and they have a what we call a neurogenic bladder where it fills up and it doesn't empty. But it would be kind of hard to do that voluntarily just from holding it in, you know. Well, people have looked into other possibilities for his death. Uh, there was one theory that was gaining a lot of traction a couple of years ago, the idea that he had been poisoned. Uh, so his body was actually exhumed and tested several times. At first, it seemed like he had been poisoned. A lot of mercury was found in what remained of his body. However, follow-up studies have been less conclusive and, in fact, have made it appear as though he did not, in fact, uh, suffer from any kind of poisoning. But at the time, when it was believed that he had been poisoned, uh, a lot of the fingers pointed at Kepler, Johannes Kepler, who was his assistant at the time, who stood to gain all of his scientific equipment when Tika Brahe died. It was more his observations. You know, that's what he wanted. And his observations, yes. Yeah. Which, which which were amazing, weren't they? Like every night for years mm-hmm. and years, it was an incredible compendium of In In the pre-telescope era, too. Yeah, so since we're talking about that, the, yeah, I tried to find like some new details that we haven't talked about with, with Tycho. And Good luck. So on that score, it wasn't <laughs> – his observations were better than any astronomer of the time. Uh, for a couple of reasons. He made his own instruments. He made them really precise. He also, it seems, was among the first, if not, not the first, to regularly calibrate his equipment. That was a big innovation. <laughs> and also, he was the, really the first one to make nightly observations. Other astronomers would you know, record the positions of stars and planets at certain important points in like the planets at certain important points of their orbit, but not every night. You know, so details of the orbits emerged when you started observing them on such a frequent basis. And he was the only one to have that data. That's why Kepler was so desperate to get it. But probably not actually desperate enough to kill, according to the most recent right. and seemingly most um, rigorous studies, it appears as though he actually did die of a burst bladder. Mm-hmm. Happy birthday. Yeah, just quite a character. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first of our three mysteries this evening that we're going to delve into has to deal deal with the temperature of the atmosphere. It's about it's about thirty one Fahrenheit. Moving on. Okay, mystery solved. <laughs> mystery solved. Uh, like Steve <laughs> said, yes, a minor mystery has been solved regarding the atmosphere using very basic physics. We all know the atmosphere uh, gets colder as you ascend. Uh, not only uh, though does it start getting warmer at a certain point, many of the other planets in our solar system do the same thing, and most intriguingly, at roughly the same point in the atmosphere. Now, precisely how this happens has apparently been discovered by astronomer Tyler Robinson and, and planetary scientist David Catling, published on uh, online December 8th in the journal Nature Geoscience. 
So 110 years ago, scientist Leon Tesserank de Bort, what a cool name, uh, used balloons to be the first to realize that at about 45,000 feet, the steady decline in temperature as you increase altitude stops and starts reversing itself. So using this information, he came up with the, you know, the delineations and the names of the lowest layers of the atmosphere that, that stand to this day. The troposphere is the lowest layer that we live in, which, where all the weather happens. Uh, slightly above that is the, uh, stratosphere where ozone kind of sets up, uh, its home. And then the tiny transition zone separating these two layers and where temperatures start reversing, he called the tropopause. Now, if, if that, the suffix pause sounds funny, it's uh it's pretty common in naming boundary layers like this. There's the heliopause, which is the the boundary uh, where the sun's solar wind uh, is stopped by the interstellar space. There's the, I didn't hear I didn't know this one. The aeropause, the region of the atmosphere above which aircraft cannot fly. Oh, I guess cool. there's the magneto the magnetopause, which is the outer boundary of the magnetosphere. He's such a cool uh, villain. And then and then there's uh, menopause, of course. Uh, so then uh, the tropopause. <laughs> Therefore, <laughs> separates. Good one. Yeah. It, so this this uh, zone. Well, Bob, there's uh, also there's also the region close to the North Pole, the Santa Paws. <laughs> oh, oh, oh my god! Oh, no, no. What with Christmas coming in, all? No. Yeah. Edit, edit, edit that out, Steve. The, the tropopause therefore oh. separates these two very distinct regions regions of the atmosphere. Below is where we live, dominated by clouds and weather. Uh, the temperature is determined by heat convection. Um, in the stratosphere, the temperature profile is determined by short wave wavelength solar radiation. Very different from the tropopause or the troposphere. The tropopause, though, can be found on many planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune, uh, Uranus, and even the second largest moon, Titan. They all have this tropopause. And not only that, they all occur where atmospheric pressure is about 100 millibars, the same place in the atmosphere. So pressure at sea level is typically designated at 1,000 millibars, which equals one bar. 100 millibars then is one-tenth the density of air at sea level. So this is especially interesting considering that all these planets have their own particular atmospheric composition, heat, gravity, sunlight, etc. What these scientists did is to determine what's so special about this specific atmospheric pressure. So it turns out that at pressures lower than 100 millibars, uh, higher than the troposphere, the atmosphere is transparent to thermal radiation. This allows the shorter wavelengths like ultraviolet to dominate. And in this case, ozone absorbs ultraviolet, increasing the temperature as you get higher in the stratosphere. And the temperature actually keeps kind of zigzagging, getting colder and warmer, colder and warmer, kind of uh, depending on where, where you are, what layer in the atmosphere you are, which is kind of interesting. So um, below this in the troposphere, thermal radiation interacts with the now, with the now opaque atmosphere, which raises the temperature as, as the density increases as you obviously get closer to the ground. And of course, conven- convection does the rest. So uh, therefore, it's the common influence of molecular absorption that makes so many planets alike in, in this regard. It doesn't end there, folks. The, the com- this commonality probably extends not only within our solar system, but perhaps to billions upon billions of planets and moons throughout, throughout the entire universe. And this could actually help us find extraterrestrial life. You know, it's funny how so many of these news items kind of kind of go back to that and it could help us find aliens so um astronomer robinson uh, that i mentioned above he said so then we have somewhere where we can start to characterize that world 
we know that temperatures are going to increase below the tropopause, and we have some models for how we think these temperatures increase. So given that leg up, we can start to extrapolate downward towards the surface. So this, this could let us know if there's liquid water on the planet and, uh, and then if the exoplanet or, or the moon could actually harbor life uh, as we know it. So interesting stuff. It is amazing that you find that, you know, at that 100 millibars on Titan or the Earth, the same thing happened. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, mystery number two, Evan, mm-hmm. are the Mima mounds, these little mounds of Earth that crop up in lots of different places. I read a uh, phonetic spelling of it, and they're pronouncing it as Mima. Mounds. Mima. Mima mounds. I, I called it Mima mounds at first as well, but I guess I'll have to go with Mima Mounds because that's what a scientist said to do. Like Aunt Jemima? Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> like that. Yeah. Oh my god, no. Well, have have any of you ever heard of Mima Mounds? No. Right? Me either. <laughs> but you know why? Because that's, I think, largely because we live in the northeastern United States where Mima Mounds are not part of the common landscape. But on the west coast of the United States, also known as the left coast, the California, Oregon, Washington state's coast, or the other coast, that coast seems to have many, many places where Mima mounds seem to naturally occur. Mima mounds are, as you would guess, mounds of earth. They are low, flattened, circular to oval, dome-like natural mounds that are composed of loose, unstratified, often gravelly sediment and loomy sands. Uh, they also occur in middle portions of the United States. And in these middle regions of the country, they're known as pimple mounds or prairie mounds. The mounds do vary in size, uh, some as small as 15 feet in diameter to as large as 160 feet in diameter. And they range in height as well from anywhere from, you know, a few inches tall to eight feet tall. Whoa. And in some areas, they can number in the millions stretching for many kilometers across the landscape. And for years, for decades, and centuries even, scientists have been unable to come to a consensus as to how the Mima Mounds form. There are many theories. Aliens. (laughs) These (laughs) theories include, but are not limited to, the following. Sand dunes. Uh, Perhaps they are sand dunes, which tend to form around these vegetation areas, such as uh, tree stumps and clumps of weeds. Uh, They have come to their dune shapes by the forces of wind. These typically take place in more arid regions. Uh, I wouldn't classify Washington or Oregon or parts of California, for that matter, as arid. But the uh, the eastern part of Washington is arid over the mountains, eastern, right? And certain certainly parts of California, you know, plenty of desert regions in California as well. Uh, but they're also seen in Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado. These uh, Mima mounds have have been seen. Now, another theory purports that they are the result of earthquake activity. So the rapid and violent shaking of the ground sifts the mounds into clumps over time as seismic waves move through the ground. And these little bumps occur because the seismic waves are bumping off of the harder surfaces below the soil. And these waves will create a bouncing sort of sensation and they will clump together. Uh, another theory is glacial melting patterns. So glaciers retreat and they leave these dirt mounds here during the retreat. And it's referred to as the sun cup theory. Not sure why, but <laughs> but it does refer to shapes creating by the melting glaciers. And uh, the U.S. Geological Survey actually supports this as one of the primary theories behind it. Another theory is that these are nests where psychic big feet have laid their eggs. 
And in the third moon every Febtober, they hatched in their thin shells and crawl off into the surrounding woodlands from whence their mothers came. Uh, other theories. <laughs> other theories. <laughs> call it the Evan theory. Yes, and it's it's you know a, a perfectly cromulent theory. Uh, other theories include shrinking and swelling of clays, and also um, another one having to do with uh, pocket gophers, uh, mounds of activity where they're little creatures, <laughs> these little gophers, gophers, pocket gophers. Yeah, yeah. I want a yeah. pocket gopher. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> like, that sounds what adorable. You got there? Well, that's my pocket gopher here. You're just happy to see me. <laughs> the theory is that the gophers are tunneling into the loose soil and they run into a gravel layer below. And unable to burrow any further down, they start going up. So, of course, they bring all the soil and loose dirt up with them and the mountains up here. So there you go. There's uh, six perfectly cromulent theories on Mima Mountains. There are more theories to be found, as you said, aliens, and there's uh, Native American uh, mythology surrounding it, lots of different ideas. But just the other day, scientists have perhaps finally honed in on the most likely candidate of those ones I just described. Do you know who the winner is? The gophers. That is right. It is. Pocket gophers. Gophers, the little brown furry rodents. There you go. <laughs> this was once yeah. very famously said in a movie. And why gophers? All right. Well, San Jose State University, Dr. Manny Gabbett, he was the lead researcher on a project. They used a computer program to uh, basically create digital gophers and have them behave like they do in real life. And guess what sprouted up? Mima mounds. They started to form in the virtual landscape. Hmm. hmm. They had to do that to figure out that gophers were causing it? I know. Why couldn't they just... Dig into these mounds a little bit and kind of really poke around and see what was going on. And there. did they already know that gophers were living in the mounds and didn't know if they made them or just occupied them? It actually was it, again. It's, it was one of the prevailing theories. They have suspected it for some time, but why they haven't haven't been able to really come to this conclusion sooner is kind of a mystery in itself. Evan, I'm reading here that so the the larger mounds might have taken generations and hundreds of years for the gophers to create. Sure. You get, gen you know, just many generations of gophers kind of populating in the same areas and they keep disturbing the soil and you disturb more soil and generations go by and they have two children and they have two children and so on and so on. And what you get are these mounds that are half the size of a football field. They are the largest structures built by non-human mammals hmm. and may provide a rare example of an evolutionary coupling between landforms and the organisms that create them. And Dr. Gabbett said that as he and his team presented their groundbreaking findings, get it, at the American Geophysical Union fall meeting in San Francisco earlier this month. So there you go. Apparently, this mystery has been solved. Gophers. Cool. Thanks, Evan. So we're going to go on to mystery number three. Rebecca, you're going to explain to us why pig farms are exploding. <laughs> Not again. <laughs> When I sent this item in as a recommendation, Steve responded, do you mean they're just more popular? <laughs> actually, They're going viral? Yes, pig farms are exploding. This isn't a recent occurrence. It's actually been happening for a couple of years now, but it's an ongoing issue that I thought it'd be interesting to talk about. And unfortunately, no, Steve, I can't tell you why the pig farms are exploding because nobody really knows exactly just yet. So 
what's happening is that, uh, first of all, I should mention, this isn't a frequent occurrence. It's not like pig farms are going up every day, but it's frequent enough to be a huge problem and a great fear of pig farmers because when the farms blow up, it takes with them hundreds, thousands of pigs and a lot of money from the farmer's perspective. I read, Rebecca, that six pig farms have exploded in this fashion since it started happening. Yeah, and it started in in 2009-ish, I think. So I can tell you what we know. Uh, or what scientists know, actually. I don't know anything. But uh, <laughs> what seems to be happening, first of all, I should tell you how – it all comes down to how the pig manure is stored. What happens in a large pig farm is that the – and if anyone out there is eating lunch right now, particularly something with ham in it, you might want to put it down for a second. This this chili is good. Mm. The I just had chili. But there wasn't any pig in it. Uh, so the pigs walk around on basically a grating and they poop wherever they want. And it falls down into a pit and the pit fills up with their feces. And when it reaches a certain level, there are pipes that will drain it out and they have to wait for it to reach a certain level in order for there to be enough pressure to push all of the pig poop out. And then it goes <laughs> bursting out into a giant lake of pig shit, basically pig poop. <laughs> uh, and what's been happening is that farmers were starting to notice a foam that was forming on the top of the pig poop when it was just under the pigs before it was going out into the, uh, into the poop lake. And so, uh, what they would notice is that they would usually notice this foam just before the, uh, farms would explode. So they looked into exactly what was happening with this foam. And what they found that was that the, the foam was acting as a kind of sponge to suck up gases like methane and hydrogen sulfide, which are both incredibly flammable. And so this foam, which could sometimes be several feet thick, like a meter thick, it would absorb so much uh, gas that the smallest spark, like a pilot light or the spark of an engine, could potentially set it off and cause a huge explosion. But the question is, why was this foam forming? Why is this foam forming? And that's something that scientists aren't super sure about. They have some suspects. One is something called DDGS, Distillers Dried Grains with Solubles. And this is a byproduct of ethanol production. Ethanol production is currently really cheap because of subsidies, uh, making its byproduct extraordinarily cheap and plentiful, which encouraged farmers to buy it up and use it as animal feed. And so they think that there's a chance that this is one of the culprits. Basically, around the time that DDGS started becoming more prominent is when these explosions started happening, when this foam started to be noticed. But the problem is that 
tests have been inconclusive on whether or not this is really the problem because they've tested manure from different farms, some that are blowing up, some that aren't, and they haven't been able to isolate DDGS as the sole cause. And this could be just a problem of um, corruption of the poop, uh, hmm. which might be a difficult idea to think about. But we're not just talking about one unchanging, pure poop sus substance. First of all, DDGS itself changes uh, depending on the season, depending on the yield, uh, depending on the, the place you get it from. It can vary quite wildly what's inside of it. The pig's diet can also vary. It's not just this DDGS. It could be other things. And also those grates don't just take in pig poop. They take in anything that you drop down that will fit through the, the grate. And this could be things like pig afterbirths, uh, stillborn piglets, uh, piglets that get crushed by their mothers and drop through the grates. Oh, um, God. Popcorn? It could be, yeah. I told you to put your lunch down. Uh, <laughs> it, it could be, broken bottles and things from the farm. Uh, it also could be medicine that is given to the pigs. So it ends up in this great big slush and it's always changing. And so it's really difficult for scientists to figure out what is what. The other problem being that this pig poop can build up for years before the foam happens. But the studies they've done have only been on bottled pig poop that's left for, say, a couple of months. So they aren't really able to test it in a laboratory in the same way that it's happening in the real world. So for right now, scientists aren't really sure exactly what's causing the problem. There is a short-term solution that farmers have discovered, and that comes in the form of an antacid. They have been giving pigs an antacid that was originally meant to prevent bloating in cattle, but it seems to help decrease the gas in the pig manure. The problem with this, and, and so this does seem to work, it does result in a foamless pit of poop, but the problem with this is that that <laughs> antacid is an antibiotic. And one interesting factoid that I stumbled across while reading about this was that 80% of antibiotics in the U.S. go into farm animals, which I did not realize. Um, mm. So this is a potentially huge problem with uh, antibiotics working their way into the environment, into our diets uh, in ways that could obviously prove really troubling in the not too distant future. So we need to come up with another solution to it. Uh, I'm still hoping that there would be a leap in the uh, creation of that vegan bacon that we, we've we talked about mm -hmm. before, uh, lab-grown meat or something. That's probably the best solution. But hopefully scientists will be able to isolate exactly what's happening with the foam and be able to stop farms from exploding. Yeah, it's interesting. So, uh, from what I was reading, Rebecca, it, it sounds like the, the foam. So what, what the difference between the foam forming and not forming is the addition of a surfactant, right? Cause 
Bubbles basically need a gas to fill the bubble, a stabilizer, and a surfactant. Um, antacids disrupt the surfactant and, right, they're anti-surfactants, isn't that what they are? Mm-hmm. So that they burst the bubble so that they don't form, they don't, you know, the gas escapes and doesn't get trapped. So it's not just that it's absorbing methane, but there's bacteria in the poop that's making methane and the, and the surfactant is allowing it to be trapped in the foam. So the, the foam is basically a giant mass of methane and other combustible gases. So yeah, it's interesting it's, that they it's like basically a give, it, yeah, give it a big antacid to break up the, the surfactant and, and allow the gas to escape. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a clever solution, just not a viable long-term solution. It's not getting at the source of the problem. Yeah. And again, it's contributing to the use of antibiotics, you know, which yeah. can cause some pretty severe health effects. Also, apparently, the antacid they're using is uh, a drug called rumensin, which is, as you say, an antibiotic, I think because they have it available. It's something they have in large amounts to treat uh, feeding issues in cows. But um, why not just use something else? Use simethicone. Simethicone is the anti-gas component of antacids. You know, if, anti- if antacids say they're also anti-gas, that's because they contain the chemical simethicone. That would work. Maybe farmers just don't have that available at hand in large amounts, but that may be a solution that would not also be introducing an antibiotic, another antibiotic into the system. Sorry, no no easy answer to that mystery. Two of three mysteries solved. One yeah. only partially solved. All right, well, we're going to move on to some regular type news items. Uh, I'm going to talk to to you guys about false memory syndrome. We've talked about this before on the show. I have this, by the way. You do? You have false memory syndrome? Absolutely. Are you well, sure you're not just forgetting well, yeah, that you don't? Think, <laughs> well, you you are human. Yeah, but I rem- I remember misremembering. But are you sure? But that could be a false memory of you misremembering. <laughs> well, you never know, do you? You just don't know. You may have dreamt it. So, false yeah. memories uh, are the tendency for people to create memories that uh, that are not real, and you can't really distinguish a false memory from a genuine memory. To you, it's just a memory. And we know that memories are highly malleable. So this is all this is all old news. There's a, a recent study, however, where they looked specifically at people with highly superior autobiographical memories. Uh, these are people who can remember that on October 3rd, 2005, they had bacon for breakfast and it was a little fattier than usual. You know, we, go uh, bacon. Yeah, so did I. Specific, well, you know. specific details, like very specific details of their life, autobiographical memories. I'll point out that, you know, we have different types of memory for dip, different types of things, you know, and so autobiographical memory is one type of memory that psychologists have identified. Steve, they often check out when they can be verified, right? Well, yeah, for these people, in order to qualify as a highly superior autobiographical memory, obviously those details check out. Yeah. Yeah. If you said it rained on that day, yes, you look up, it was raining on that day. So it's, it's not clear actually if people who have these highly superior memories are born that way or if they get that way through practice. So if you look at their brains, yes, they have in- increased white matter tracks that in the areas that subsume that type of memory, so which of course would have to correlate, right? If they have better memories, they have, the underlying neurological structures have to be more robust. So that's not surprising. But is is do they have those kinds of memories because those structures are more robust, or did those structures become more robust because they developed these highly superior memories? It's that, that so that really hasn't been resolved. And you know, it wouldn't shock me if it turns out to be some kind of 
combination of those two things a tendency predilection but also you need to develop it further to get into into this highly superior memory category the question was do people with highly superior autobiographical memories develop false memories as easily as more typical people and this would uh, help illuminate what the process is that's creating the false memories also might help teach us a, a little bit about the superior memories as well. So what do you guys think? What did they discover when they specifically researched this question? I think they yeah, found I, that those people were more likely to <laughs> get false memories. <laughs> just guess. I guess this, they're, they're just as likely. Uh, they are just as likely to maybe a little bit more likely to, to develop mm-hmm. false memories. We both uh, win. They're not, they're not resistant. They're certainly <laughs> not resistant. They're not resistant to forming false memories. The research paradigms that they used are, again, these are well-established ways of creating false memories. A a couple of them I've used and other skeptical lecturers have used, you know, during our lectures when we're trying to show the audience how malleable memory is, for example. Like in our seminars, guys, remember, you show a list of words. Yeah, yeah. And all the words suggest the concept of sweetness, but the word sweet is not among them. And then you show another slide that has a couple of words on it, and you say, if, if you can imagine this word on the list, then uh, indicate that. And, uh, the, you know, the target word being sweet. And a, a significant proportion of people remember seeing the word sweet 20 seconds ago when they hadn't, in fact, seen it. It was a false memory suggested by the context of the words that were given. That's called a lure word. So that, that the process there is that, you know, we have a thematic memory and then we alter the details in order to fit the theme. So the narrative is these are a whole bunch of words about sweetness. Yeah. The detail is the word sweet. And you nicely just you know, you confabulate, create a false memory of having seen the word because it fits the narrative sweet words. That was one of the tests they did to typical controls and the highly superior autobiographical memory subjects. And they formed the false memory of the, of the target words just as easily as the typical uh, people. Um, other tests, you can give somebody a, uh, like show them a video or show them a picture, and then you can ask leading questions about what they just saw and, and see if that causes them to develop false memories for details that weren't there, but that were just suggested. Um, and they, again, they did that as well. There's also a process by which you can personalize a memory. So if you're told a graphic detailed story or a vivid story about an experience, you may remember it a week later as you having the experience. You guys remember the popcorn commercial study we talked about maybe last year? Sure. People told details about trying yummy popcorn, actually remember eating it even though they were just told the story about it. These are all false memories. <laughs> so what the researchers conclude from this is that um, – so if people with a highly superior autobiographical memory are – are able to store the details of their autobiographical memory in greater detail uh, than a typical person, um, but that's not protecting them from false memory, then the false memory may, may lie in some other aspect of memory. And what they think is that it's in the reconstruction. So every time you remember something, you're actually reconstructing that memory. That is such a, that's such a key concept, Steve. Yeah, it's so important. Absolutely. 
You know, it's not it's, a videotape or recording. It's something that you are actively recreating every time you think about it. And that's and, and that's changing. It, yeah, that's how it gets so, and changing. morphed into some weird things. Essentially, your brain is creating a story, a narrative that makes sense. And that narrative has to make sense to your current self, and which means you update your memories based upon new stuff that you learn, your new model, internal model of reality of yourself but why does it have to history? make sense of that like your your brain is constantly trying to make itself feel better by rewriting its yes. memory yes to make make itself feel better and also to have everything make sense to be a one consistent narrative although you can compartmentalize you can have different narratives that conflict but the narrative that you're constructing shouldn't conflict with itself and so you change the details of your memory in order to make everything fit together. Um, and if the theme of your narrative conflicts with the details, generally speaking, you alter the details. And um, you can merge details from different memories. You can confabulate entirely new details. You can have details suggested to you. And that just creates, you know, enough of this and we call it a false memory. You know, if like there's an entire episode that never happened, but you remember it happening, you know, we call that a false memory. But all your memories are false in that they're all, they're all reconstructed over and over again. So, and the reason why, you know, we have a particular interest in this process, you know, first is because our memory, you know, faulty memories are a common source of pseudoscientific beliefs or, you know, supernatural paranormal beliefs, people often will use their memory of what happened as evidence for something paranormal. You know, I, I experienced a ghost. Well, you have a memory of a, of a subjective experience, and that memory has now been reconstructed hundreds of times. Every time you've told the story about your ghost encounter, you've reconstructed that memory. And now you probably do remember an encounter that's very compelling and defies explanation, but that's just because your memory is a, is fake. You know, it's completely reconstructed false memory. Um, but there was a movement beginning in the 80s around, uh, spurned by the book or spawned by the book, The Courage to Heal, where the, um, the authors believed that people had repressed memories and that they were able to bring out these repressed memories of trauma you know, rape, abuse, satanic ritual abuse through counseling. And in fact, what they were doing is not bringing out repressed memories, but creating, constructing false memories. And repressed memory syndrome was actually false memory syndrome. Um, still people rotting in jail, by the way, based upon repressed memory testimony in the courtroom. Terrible. Absolutely terrible. So, yeah, understanding the foibles of human memory is absolutely critical to what I call neuropsychological humility and is at the core of skepticism. So I think it's something that we need to keep reminding ourselves and other people about it. This is just one tiny little piece to this overall puzzle, but it's the notion that even people with these fabulously detailed memories, they still have to reconstruct those memories when they remember them and in so doing can introduce false memories just as easily as anybody else. All right. One last news item. Jay, you're going to tell us about the oldest human DNA that has ever been sequenced. Yeah, this one is really awesome because it shows that the advancement of science is significantly increasing our information. 
So scientists have discovered 400,000-year-old DNA in a human femur bone found in the pit of bones in Spain, not to be confused with the pit of despair, which, of course, is underneath the tree. <laughs> nice. Thank you, Bob, and the three other people out there who get that reference. Oh, I got a lot it. more than three, a lot more Princess than Bride, come on. <laughs> Discoveries like this typically raise more questions than answers. For over 20 years, evolutionary biologists have been excavating and piecing together the remains of an estimated 28 ancient people that they found in the, the pit of bones. The remains date back to the middle Pleistocene. Or now, I always the- said Pleistocene. Hmm. It's going to be one of those episodes, huh? <laughs> no. Just want to keep it going. 400,000 well, years ago. All right, but I have I good news, Rebecca and Steve. It, you could more specifically refer to that time period as the Lonian stage. Mm-hmm. The Lonian so every, Repeat after me, Rebecca. Lonian stage. Lonian stage. Yes. Lonian. Lonian. You say that. You say Lonian. I say Lonian. So this dates back. I like this better. I don't like these like the middle plasticine, uh, plastic saints. But they no, mean something, Jay. They mean yes, something. Yes, they do. But I, I, I don't know what they mean. And who the hell <laughs> the paleontologist has them memorized? These dates are they date back to 781 to 126,000 years ago. 781 to 126,000 years ago. At least I can kind of wrap my head around that. This collection is one of the best samples, though, of bones that belong to that time period. And there's a, a reason why. It's because the temperature inside the pit of bones was was relatively stable. The temperature and humidity didn't fluctuate, and that is a way in a way, preserves the DNA that, that's found in the bones. So check this out, guys. The pit where the bones are found is accessible through narrow tunnels that were hundreds of meters long, and then the scientists also have to rope down through the dark to get down to the excavation site. So first off, how the hell did they find this? It had to be like some spelunkers that were in there and maybe, I guess, stumbled across some bone and told the scientists, but I couldn't find any any information on you know, how did they realize that this incredibly deep and far from the surface place was used as an ancient burial site? So what's interesting is that these bodies were most likely left there deliberately, like I said, but I don't see how, how did the people that brought their bodies in there find this place? Like, how did they go in that deep without flashlights or, you know, did they use well, torches? Well, didn't they just wash down there? I mean, like they just threw it in the pit and that's where they sort of settled? <laughs> I don't think so, Steve, because they were referring to it as a burial site. So, sure, maybe some big geologic thing happened. Well, I mean, I think there's no question that the bodies were just thrown into the pit. The question is, was that deliberate as a burial or did they fall in? You know, there are cave bears down there, too, who fell to their death and wound up in the pit as well. So are the human bones there thrown in deliberately as a type of burial or are they just there in the same way that the cave bears are there? They fell in or whatever. The fossils have traits that are common with Neanderthals, and they either belong to early ancestors called Homo heidelbergensis. Heidelbergensis. Say it, Rebecca. You try it. Heidelbergensis. There you go. Heidelbergensis. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not even looking at it. <laughs> Heidelbergensis. Thank you. I can do that. So they're either part of Heidelbergensis or they're part of early Neanderthal lineage some, somehow, some way. The reason we know this information about the DNA of these bones is because of an incredible advancements made in, in sequencing technology. And this technology has progressed so far that we can go back to like 400,000, 500,000 years old where 
you know, recently scientists believe that you could only go back to about the 60,000 year mark. So it, it's amazing, first of all, that they, they were able to find DNA and piece it back together to such a degree where they almost have a complete set. The progress that these scientists have made has dramatically changed our scope of how far back we can reach. And I, and I was thinking, well, if they made these advancements and they're working on this technology, you know, maybe they'll be able to go back a lot farther than that. And I, I wonder how far back we will be able to go, say, in the next 50 years. I mean, maybe we'll be, you know, finding DNA in dinosaur bones. 400,000 years to 65 million years is a huge leap. Um, also, Jay, you didn't mention it, but that this, they only sequenced mitochondrial DNA, not nuclear DNA, which is a tiny piece of the DNA and gives a very incomplete picture. But, uh, yeah, it is, it is great that they were able to piece together the mitochondrial DNA. And that is a good, it's a fantastic tool for reconstructing the family tree, you know, because the fossils don't tell the whole story. What's interesting, what, what was really interesting is that these, the DNA from these fossils were actually closest to the Denisovians, which is a, a Siberian little branch, side branch of humanity uh, that is, is mostly known from DNA. We have only a couple of little fragments, like a finger bone. They're and the uh, earliest known ancestors of Wesley from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Okay, I got it. it. Very, very good. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> oh, you were kidding. Oh. His, the actor's name is Alexei Denisov. You know, why would these... Why would these bones from 400,000 years ago be most closely related to this tiny side branch from 40,000 years ago? Uh, that's what we don't know. So they, they you know, they, there's multiple different scenarios of branching and ancestry and crossbreeding, you know, that could have produced that. So this is not enough evidence. That's why I, I brought up the mitochondrial DNA thing that we, nuclear DNA would really help to sort that out, um, mm. as well as, uh, sequencing DNA from other branches, I mean, other populations of humans in Europe to see how these lines were related. We're drilling down pretty deep into the details of human ancestry where the complexity is, is going to be tremendous because, you know, these were probably not discrete, isolated populations. You know, they were, they were evolving themselves and also interbreeding and migrating, and it's probably just horrifically complicated. Um, but really cool. It's so much more complicated. Like when I studied human evolution in college 28 <laughs> years ago, whatever, a long time ago, uh, <laughs> cool. it was so, dinosaurs, it man. was so much simpler <laughs> than, you know, than it is now. <laughs> um, now we have Homo yeah, florensiensis, you know, the, the hobbit. We haven't talked about that in a while. Uh, the, the Denisovians. They found Bilbo? They found Bilbo, yeah, on the island of Flores. Yeah, I think, I think you're, I think you're right, Jay, in that we're still on that part of the curve where new information is, is increasing our ignorance, you know. It's getting more and more and more confusing, and that's going to continue until we get, you know, past a certain critical point where we're starting to really, you know, shape it all together. Well, before we go on with Who's That Noisy, I would like a quickie with Bob. Oh boy. Haven't had one in a while. Well, thank you, Steve. This is your quickie with Bob. Uh, it looks like, guys, a man trip to Mars isn't quite as deadly radiation wise as we thought. <laughs> that just cool. blew my mind. Uh, I'm talking, uh, 
um, in terms of radiation, galactic cosmic rays and solar energetic particles, which are just all over the place on Mars, on the trip, everywhere. So data, data the Mars Curiosity probe has been collecting for something like 300 days or something suggests that a mammoth expedition to Mars, including a 180-day trip plus 500 days on the red planet plus another 180 days back to Earth, would only inflict about 1.01 sieverts. Uh, a sievert is a unit of uh, radiation dose that can be used to assess biological risk. So one sievert then relates to approximately a 5% increased chance of getting cancer. So the European Space a Agency has a career dose limit for their astronauts of one sievert, which puts Mars totally in the ballpark. It's right, it's right around there. Uh, NASA has a limit of... Um, 3% increase of, uh, chance of cancer, but they're actually revamping their, um, their rules now because the 3% is really for low Earth orbit. It's not for a, for a deep space expedition. So this is, this is really good news. Um, I think though that they should factor in somehow that they could, the astronauts could still be totally screwed if there's a major solar event. Uh, mm -hmm. they really need to account for, for, for that possibility. Um, but also these figures don't include any su sufficient or significant shielding for the ship or the habitat on Mars, uh, if, I'm, if I'm not cor incorrect. So if you factor that in, um, then I think the sievert dose could be tiny. It could be a half or a quarter sievert or maybe even less. But of course, that brings us back to uh, the beginning where we still need some type of, uh, of ship shielding and habitat shielding, which is really hard because it's so expensive to launch that stuff. Uh, but there's, there's lots of options, and I still think that they've got to uh, factor that in and uh, if for no other reason than just a, a wacky event, solar event, that could just take out your whole crew. So it's very encouraging, though, to know that it's not nearly as bad as I thought. So this has been your Quickie with Bob. I know it was good for you, too. You know, just dig, dig a hole. You know, right? get under the ground. Exactly. Just a regular, and use robots to, to prep your, um, your habitat. It should be ready yeah. to go when you get there. I mean, that's, that's how Absolutely. I think we're going to do that. You know, it just it seems like such a no-brainer. Well, guys, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about a new sponsor this week, Personal Capital. This is an online uh, resource that is completely free. You can go there and organize all of your investments in one place. Yeah, you know, this is really handy because I have millions of dollars and they're spread out <laughs> across savings accounts, checking yep. accounts, your CDs, yep. IRAs, a box under my mattress. Yes. How do you keep track of it all? Well, you can use personal capital and they will keep track of all of your financial accounts and give you a real-time snapshot of your finances. Right. You'll get graphs and charts and reports that'll give you the whole story, encompass all of the different investments that you have, and it makes it all easy to understand and track everything as it progresses. Signing up is a really quick process and uh, it, it'll help you make your you know, better investment decisions uh, very quickly once you're, once you're up and running. So there's no reason to wait. Get your free personal capital account now at personalcapital.com forward slash SGU. Yep. Now, if you happen to have $100,000 in investable assets or more. I do. Then and personal capital offers their wealth management solutions and they, uh, they charge very competitive rates for that service. So you can start today just by going to personalcapital.com forward slash SGU. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. All right, Evan, it's Who's That Noisy time. Thank you, Steve. And we'll play for you last week's Who's That Noisy. Here we go. <laughs> Who's 
any ideas? Yeah, sounds no idea. Sounds like an alien. I agree. It sounds rather alien. So or it, it sounds an alien? like one computer talking to another computer. Have you ever heard of the well yes. video? <laughs> I am sitting <laughs> in a video room. So on YouTube, <clears throat> there is a fellow. He goes by the name of well, it's his actual name, Patrick Liddell. He's a music composer and video artist. He lives in Chicago. And what he did back in 2010, actually started in 2009 and ended in 2010, is he made a recording of him saying some words, which is starting, I am sitting in a, I am sitting in a room. I'm sitting in a video room. And he, you know, talks for about a minute. And what he does is he takes that and he uploads that recording to YouTube. And then he pulls it back down and he repeats the process 1,000 times. In order but to pulls see, it down, you mean he rips it? From rips it, yes, YouTube. and then reloads it, yeah. and then rips it again, and repeats the process a thousand times to see just how distorted the video and audio would become. And what you're hearing is the audio component of the video, and that's what happens when you upload and take down and re-upload something one thousand times on YouTube. Yeah, it cool. distorts it beyond wow. recognition. Yes, video as well. It's a couple of light blobs at the at the end of it all. So that's the compression, I guess, that YouTube is using. Right. And a lot of people got this correct. So a lot oh, of... Oh, uh, wow. <laughs> yeah, quite a, quite a few. I'd say about 100 correct answers wow. on this one between uh, message wow. boards and emails and people messaging me on Facebook and other things. So, um, but only one winner as ever. Uh, Dorian Ackerman is this week's winner. Congratulations, Dorian. And I would also like to throw out a big thank you to listener Mikael or Michael Sand, M-I-K-A-E-L. I think I'll call him Michael. Michael Sand, listener from, uh, I don't know where he's from, a European country of some sort. But in any case, he, <laughs> he turned me on to this video. It was very, very cool. And we did decide to use it. So thank you, Michael, for sharing that with us. For this week, we have somebody saying some stuff. So you got to figure out who it is. Saying well, I think this. I know it. Uh, you do? Oh, so, you know, which is like clue to, you gave us. Would you like to? Yes. It's not Wink Martindale, no. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, Joe Bag of Donuts. <laughs> was that an email we received recently? Uh, who yes, is Wink yes. Martindale? <laughs> yeah. He said after three, after three years, I finally, I finally Googled Wink Martindale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Google Frankie Jismore and see what you come up oh! with. Oh! <laughs> or Haywood. Thanks for not finishing that. Here we go. You are free to believe me or to disbelieve, but please take my word on it that I am not joking. This is very serious, a matter of importance. At that time, I had no idea what I was seeing. It resembled nothing that I had ever heard described. It resembled plasmic energy. It had colors. It moved fast. It collected and then dispersed. What do you think he was describing? Well, more more importantly, who was that? I don't know. What's that noisy? The email is wtn at theskepticsguide.org or post it on our message boards, sguforums.com. Give it your best shot. Good luck, everyone. All right. Thanks, Evan. We're going to do one email this week. This one comes from David Kyle Johnson from King's College, Wilkes Bar, PA, Pennsylvania. And he writes... Hi, I'm a big fan of the show. I met I met a number of you at Nexus 2011. I was Massimo's guest speaker. Steve may remember me as the idiot at the dinner with Randy who didn't know that Joe Nickel was the Shroud of Turing guy. 
I might. Um, he says, I've got something I really hope you can talk about on the show. I recently came across some biological claims in a creationist argument that I had never heard before and are beyond my expertise. I tried to find someone credible online that has already taken them on, but I came up empty handed. He goes on, but I'm going to cut right to the, uh, the email. This is an email now from, uh, somebody that he knows. This is a creationist explaining why he doesn't believe in evolution. This could double as a name, not logical fallacy. Let's start with the first paragraph. The emailer writes, The problem is that once an idea becomes generally accepted in academia, it becomes almost impossible to challenge an accepted truth. In medicine, there are certain truisms that, although provable false, are almost impossible to challenge because they continue to be taught as fact in all medical schools. Epinephrine injected into a digit like a finger or toe can result in loss of the digit, never proven. Belief based on a study done in the 1940s showing that people injected with Novocaine with a pH of 1 lost digits. Epinephrine only used in 50% of cases and 100% of the cases involved acidic Novocaine, yet epinephrine gets the blame. If you have an allergy to seafood, you are allergic to iodine, based on a study in the 1970s showing that people who are prone to allergies tend to have more than one allergy. Never mind that almost all table salt has iodine in it, and if you can take table salt, you probably can handle iodine. I'm going to pause there. That That's one point that he's making. Yeah. Now, you can't believe science because things get taught as dogma, and then it becomes impossible to challenge these facts, this this dogma. But that's not how science works. Yeah, he's already confusing the scientific method with public perception, which are two completely different things. If he's talking about public misconceptions, he should talk about that. If he's talking about the scientific method, he should talk about that. Like the 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 full database of of scientific knowledge is not what is commonly understood or even sometimes taught in the general public. Right. Although he's not talking about the general public here. He's talking about physicians in medical school. He's, he's uh, implying that they never accept, you know, new studies, new claims, new evidence that comes along. It's like once yeah. you learn it, that's it. And this is what happens. And despite what comes along, doctors especially or people in medical school have a uh, natural tendency to uh, avoid the new data and just stick but with what more, what they were more, taught. Worse than that, you can't. It's impossible to challenge. That's what he's saying. Almost impossible to challenge. So his two examples are actually examples of things that have been taught in medical school far beyond the point where they were proven wrong. Um, so that is legitimate as far as that goes. There is a certain amount of inertia to these kind of things because they get taught from senior doctor to medical student, maybe getting taught by somebody who's, you know, a decade or two out of their medical school training and just isn't up to date on these particular things, which are now maybe outside of their area of expertise. So the other thing that these two things have in common is that they are, they are both risks that physicians want to avoid. And medicine does tend to be risk averse in this way. It is a high threshold. Once we think that something is a bad idea, it takes a lot of evidence to reassure us to the point that we will then do it, you know, not only for scientific reasons, but medical legal reasons. In both of these cases, though, these these notions were challenged and they were shown to be wrong. And now that's the standard. That's the scientific standard. That's what accepted. There are studies published showing that it's 
very it's completely safe to inject epinephrine into digits so it's done now and that that if you have a fish allergy or a or a shellfish allergy specifically you are at no higher risk of having an allergy to the contrast dye that's given with certain uh, imaging studies. Um, although radiologists will still, because it's built into the culture, they'll still take that history. Do you have a history of seafood allergy? But the, the notion that these can't be challenged is provably wrong. They were challenged. And then the, sci the scientific consensus is based upon the evidence. So his own examples prove his point wrong. I love when that happens. But he goes on to make a, a, another point. This one... Um, it's just like a specific biological point. Very common among creationists, though. He writes, with every generation, children inherit 12 to 30 base pair errors in their DNA from their parents. These errors are passed to each generation along with an additional 12 to 30 base errors. Over time, these errors accumulate in a net information loss, not gain. To claim mutations result in information gain is to claim that chaos is information. In some cases, mutations have been protective, such as antibiotic resistance in certain bacteria, but this is only true in a very strict environment and still only because the bacteria has lost the ability to metabolize that antibiotic. Their evolution is based on a loss of information. And once that same bacteria is reintroduced to an environment where bacteria without the mutation are present, the mutated bacteria quickly demonstrate they are unable to compete. So everything he just wrote is completely wrong. Yeah, what, one problem... Is, is the whole idea of information. Uh, yeah. pe people like this, they really very rarely will they even attempt to define what they mean by information, the word information in this context. And even people who agree with him can't agree among themselves, uh, you know, what it means. And then, and, uh, there, there's a lot of moving the goalposts with this kind of stuff as well. The idea of increasing genetic information, um, sure that's, sure that's possible. I mean, there has to be one way for that to happen is that there has to be types of a, mu of a mutation that make the genome larger. A, ge a larger genome would of course mean that there's new information. And with things like gene duplication and polyploidy, I mean, these are, these are bona fide proven ways to, to increase the size of the genome. You're right, Bob, but there's the, the, there's an assumption in here. The hidden premise is that a mutation is information loss. Uh, because whatever right. the original, quote unquote, original form is somehow the correct form or the pristine form. Mm -hmm. And that all mutations are degrading or devolving from this perfect form. But that's taking a very biblical approach to the whole uh -huh. thing. Right. Um, when in fact mutations are not information lost, it's just change. Yeah. I mean, it's not any, it's not degraded. It's just different. It, there's no, there's no one correct form of any genes. They just are what they are. They're all variations and mutations increase those variations. Some of those variations are favorable. Some are harmful. Most are neutral or they're subtle in their effects. It's just different. And yes, it absolutely increases information. It, you know, it's not information loss at all. But this is intelligent design propaganda that this guy is regurgitating. The idea that mutations are a loss of information. It's actually, it's utter nonsense. It's based upon false premises. And it, it's a complete misunderstanding of the nature of, of our genetic code, of biology, and of evolution. He also, you know, the other things he says are in, incorrect in that 
you know, bacteria gain protection because they lose the ability to metabolize an antibiotic? That's wrong. That's not true at all. Bacteria don't metabolize antibiotics. Antibiotics generally disrupt some aspect of the cell's metabolism, the cell membrane or something the bacterial cell is doing. Um, and the bacteria evolve resistance to that disruption. It's not a loss of the ability to metabolize the antibiotic. That's just made up nonsense. I haven't, I don't, I never even heard that before. I don't even know where the guy is getting that from. That's a, yeah, it's a complete misconception. Your business depends on software. All your apps, your databases, your social media, your account management, your e-commerce, everything you do in business relies on software. So the very last thing you need is a problem with it. New Relics Software Analytics give you powerful, real-time insights into your software so you can spot problems and fix them before they become big business-stopping problems. Plus, you got web and mobile apps, right? Of course you do. You can't be in business today without a strong presence online. So let me ask you, do you have any clue how they're performing? With New Relic, you can stop wondering and start knowing how your apps are performing because New Relic gives you full code-level visibility into their real-time performance. Give New Relic a try free for 30 days. Go to newrelic.com slash radio. That's N-E-W-R-E-L-I-C dot com slash radio. Newrelic.com slash radio. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake Just three normal news items this week, no theme. I know you'll be happy, especially after last week's debacle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, you guys ready? <laughs> Do it. Yep. I should have gotten that right last week. There we go. Item number one, scientists report a new technique that can distinguish a DNA paternity test between identical twins. Item number two, researchers have discovered a new atmospheric chemical that, molecule for molecule, is 7,100 times the global warming impact as carbon dioxide. Item number three, new measurements find that mercury has expanded more than previously thought about 100 kilometers in diameter over the life of the solar system. Rebecca, go first. Oh, man. So let's see. New technique that can distinguish a DNA paternity test between identical twins. If they're identical, wouldn't their DNA be identical? Determining which of the two twins is the father Correct. of another baby. Okay. I don't know. And if it, is it just for paternity? Uh, because I feel like the more important thing there would be when it comes to crimes being committed, determining which of two identical twins is the culprit. Because I know that that has actually come up before, or maybe I just saw it in an episode of Law and Order. <laughs> but it does seem like a serious issue that needs to be solved. So, I don't know. A new atmospheric chemical with 7,100 times the global warming impact is carbon dioxide. I mean, that could be really terrible, but maybe the chemical involved is very sparse. And so it actually wouldn't necessarily be that big of a deal. And that's why maybe we haven't noticed it until now. So sure, why not? 
and Mercury expanding more than previously thought, 100 kilometers over the life of the solar system. I mean, that doesn't seem like a lot. Like, the solar system is really old. Why not? Why couldn't Mercury expand? Maybe because it's being warmed up by the sun. It's really close to the sun. And when things get hot, they expand. So, sure. I'm going to just throw a dart. I'm going to go with the atmospherical, the, the atmospheric chemical. I don't, if they've found one, I don't think it has that kind of impact on global warming, I guess. I really have no idea. Good job, Steve. Okay, Bob. Yeah. DNA paternity test. Yeah, I mean, I can't put my finger on it, but I know, it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest that there's something that can be used that can distinguish two twins. I know there are epigenetic differences. I don't think that would come into play in the DNA paternity test. So, oh, man, yeah, it's a good one. I'm not sure. I can't think of what it is. The atmospheric chemical, 70, yeah, I agree with Rebecca. Um, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if they found one, and if they did, it would probably have to be incredibly sparse. Otherwise, they would have found it previously, I would think, and 7,100 just seems huge. And the mercury one, too, that's, yeah, things... As it heats up, it would I could see it expanding. But I also think that the tidal forces uh, were probably fairly tremendous, and that I think perhaps the tremendous tidal forces. I mean, not only is it tidally locked, but I mean perhaps that can jumble things up enough where it could increase the diameter 100 kilometers. Yeah, I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with the atmospheric chemical. I think 7,100 times is just too much. 10, 20, 30 times. Yeah, not seven. 7,100. So that's fiction. Better be. Okay. Evan? The DNA paternity test between identical twins. No clue. This is Of the three, this is the one I have the least thoughts about. I'm just drawing an absolute blank. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'll move on. Then the new atmospheric chemical. Molecule molecule for molecule. Molecule. Molecule for molecule. 7,100 times the global warming impact. How is that possible? Discovered it. So it's a new atmospheric chemical. They've discovered it. it I, I'm a little confused as if it's a new discovery of a chemical that's already been there or they've realized that a new chemical of some kind has arisen. So that, that's why I have a problem with this one. And of course, the 7,100 times the global warming. Yeah, it's a big, 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 big number. And if that is true, er, are we, how, how, how deep are we in? I mean, <laughs> worse than we thought, unless it's in such trace, trace, trace amounts that it otherwise won't have a measurable effect. And carbon dioxide is still the main culprit. Last one, mercury. So mercury expands, mercury contracts, heat versus uh, tidal force, that's what you said, Bob. Sure, it could change. I can't imagine that it's that any of our planets have stayed the same size, frankly, uh, in that amount of time. So I think that one has to be true. Well, I guess I got to go with Rebecca. Yes. Okay, Jay. The first one about the DNA paternity test. Um, I don't see any reason why they wouldn't be able to come up with a way that would show a difference between two identical twins. I think that that's, that's plausible. Sure, there, there's probably something that they can detect in the DNA that distinguishes between the two of them. So that's fine. The second one about the um, discovering the, the molecule that's 7,100 times as bad as carbon dioxide for global warming. 
damn, I hope that's not true. That is really, really bad news. That is, you know, phenomenally more effective than uh, carbon dioxide or powerful when it comes to that. That's that's interesting. But sure, there could be a you know a molecule that um, we recently discovered that has properties that could be much worse than carbon dioxide. And that's the other thing. I don't see any reason why that couldn't exist. And this third one about the measurements of mercury has expanded more than previously thought. That's weird. How could it have gotten, how could that the planet have gotten bigger? That one's a fiction to me. Which one? The one about the planet, about mercury increasing its diameter. So you all agree that scientists report a new technique that can distinguish a DNA paternity test between identical twins. You all think that one is science. And that one is science. Hmm. All alive oh, so hooray. far. So, yeah. So, monozygotic twins, identical DNA. You can do a paternity test. And, yes, this also has the same implications for criminal forensic, you know, DNA testing. Um, previously, cool. you know, you have identical twins. You can't distinguish between the two of them. That kind of creates problems. Uh, but what they found, what researchers have found, is that they can identify single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs, SNPs, that are different between even identical twins. Hmm. Uh, what this means is that after the egg splits, you know, the fertilized egg splits into two zygotes, that a number of these uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms develop right at that stage. So after the split, so that they have different mutations between the two identical twins. And that those then get passed on to every cell in the body. So they happen early enough that it's still getting passed on to all the cells, but after the split. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's yeah. Cool. What's yeah. the I yes. in, in SNP? Oh, it's just SNP, single nucleotide. Oh, SNP. Okay. It could have been snaps. Could have been snaps. <laughs> <laughs> or two snaps. Or snoops. Or snop. <laughs> two snaps. Snoop. It definitely could not have been snoops. <laughs> okay. It's ridiculous. Let's go on to number two. Researchers have discovered a new atmospheric chemical. That molecule for molecule has 7,100 times the global warming impact as carbon dioxide. Jay thinks this one is science. Everyone else thinks this one is fiction. Oh, I'm all alone, huh? You're all alone, Jay. And uh-huh. this one is Say it. Say science. It. Ah! Science. Good work, Jay. Incredible. Wow. Jay, the sole winner this week. Thank you, Rebecca. Oh, my God. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> yeah. So scientists from the University of Toronto's Department of Chemistry have discovered a novel chemical lurking in the atmosphere. Uh, This is PFTBA, perfluorotributylamine. Now, what makes this such a – there's two two features of any chemical that determines what impact it has on – as a greenhouse gas. One is its uh, thermal properties. And the other is how long it lasts in the atmosphere. So this molecule has both of those things in that it has uh, much more thermal effects than, say, carbon dioxide in terms of trapping heat. But also it lasts for centuries, lasts for a long time in the atmosphere. This is not a natural chemical. This is the does not occur in nature. It is a product of uh, human industry. So it is something that we are putting into the atmosphere uh, but yes, in small amounts, nowhere near the amounts of carbon dioxide. So that's why I said molecule for molecule, not its overall effect on global warming. Just, you know, one molecule of this thing will last for a long time and, and because, and, and will contribute more 
than one molecule of carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide, by the way, doesn't have that much, you know, again, molecule for molecule doesn't have that much of an effect. It does have, it is a greenhouse gas, but it, it's not, um, its effects are actually a lot less than a lot of other gases. Uh, in quantity. Fact, yeah, it's partly quantity, but it's also the fact that there are things that are then amplify the effect. So like water vapor is, has much more of a greenhouse gas effect, but that's amplify, that amplifies the effect of the increase in carbon dioxide. Methane, much, much more of an effect than carbon dioxide. So I, we, you know, we talk about CO2. It is the one that's forcing the, the whole shift. You know, it, it, the other ones are reactive. This is the one that's forcing. Does that make sense? Like water vapor is just reactive. You know, it's, it's not, you can't force global warming by releasing water vapor into the air. The increased CO2 increases the water vapor, which then dramatically increases the amount of greenhouse gas effect. All right. Which means, New measurements find that Mercury has expanded more than previously thought, about 100 kilometers in diameter over the life of the solar system. That one, of course, is the fiction because new measurements find that it is shrinking. What? Mercury is shrinking. But we came up with so many good reasons why it would be expanding. (laughs) Tidal forces. And it has shrunk more. More over the last four and a half billion years than astronomers previously thought. It has shrunk by 11 kilometers in four So and why half is it shrinking? Years. What's well, happening? That's a really good question. Evaporation? Left it, in the, left it in the dryer too long. Yeah. It probably has something to do with the intense heat. Yeah, it's pretty close to the sun there. Uh, they, but I thought that would make it expand. Yeah, but once it heats up, it's not going to continue to heat up, but it will, I guess boil a little bit of it away over time. So they and they know that it's shrinking because of the uh, surface features. You know, as it shrinks, it gets wrinkly. And they could use that measurement of the wrinkles to calculate. Like it's been in the bath too long. Yeah, what, exactly. What were you shrinking? Huh. What were you shrinking? <laughs> they said it could be due to the core cooling. The core, you know, even though the surface is very hot, the core could still be cooling, and that could be causing it to shrink. All right, so good job, Jay. Thanks. Good solo win. Well done, Jay. And I appreciate as, that. As a reward, you get to give us a quote this week. Yeah. Okay, this quote was sent in by Stephen. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't you think that was you. Big fan of Stephen. using the one I sent you? Stephen uh, Is J. this Fry. the Voltaire quote, Steve? Yeah, that's oh, a good one. Mm-hmm. And the quote is, doubt is not a pleasant condition, but certainty is absurd. And Steve, who is that? Voltaire. Come mm-hmm. again? <laughs> I believe that's pronounced... Voltare. No, Voltare? No, Voltare. Yes, doubt is good. Like, say, greed is good. Like doubt greed, is good. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because certainty is absurd. I like that quote a lot. Uh, all right, announcements. So, if you're listening to this show soon after it comes out, there may be just enough time to get in your votes for the year-end wrap-up episode. So let us know what was your favorite episode, your most surprising news item, uh, your favorite interview, the favorite, favorite bit from the show over the last year. Just tell us what, you know, about the show or about science or skepticism, what you remember, what stands out over the last year. We're going to talk about uh, the Science and Skepticism Year in Review for the last show of the year, as we always do. Remember, the more you send in, the less work we have to do. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. We're going to crowdsource that episode. Let's mm-hmm. be <laughs> yeah, nice. even if you just want to send us your favorite moment of the show for the year, that would help a lot just to collect those funny bits. Oh, I have an announcement. 
announcement. There was a passing recently in the world of, well, the greater world of skepticism in a way. Uh, Lloyd Anthony Pye departed us on December 9th, 2013. American author and paranormal researcher best known for his promotion of the Star Child Skull. And if you go to his Wikipedia page under the star, the section called the Star Child Skull, uh, part of it reads, American clinical neurologist Stephen Novella believes the skull belongs to a child who suffered from hydrocephalus. Yeah, it's an oversimplification. It's funny because I've been, um, I think I'm the only skeptic to really take him on head on. I mean, others have touched on it. You know, Brian Dunning wrote about it briefly, but I did like a sort of a full takedown and have been following the star child skull, um, shenanigans. And it's interesting. And I've actually, ironically, just recently, I've sort of re, examined the whole thing because it came up in the comments of one of my blogs. So I didn't realize that Pi was sick. But we'll uh, this just happened. Uh, usually we do a in memoriam where we talk about all the uh, people in the skeptical universe who passed over the last year. So we'll, we'll talk about this some more in the year-end wrap-up show. Well, thank you for joining me this week, everyone. Thank you, You're Steve. You're welcome. Thanks, Steve. Hey. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. And now that the show's over, don't forget to sign up for your free account with Personal Capital right now. With Personal Capital, you'll finally be able to see all your accounts in one place and get a clear view of everything you own. To sign up for free, go to theskepticsguide.org and click on the Personal Capital banner, or go to personalcapital.com forward slash SGU. Personal Capital, less fees, more Gs.